Hello, and welcome back to this week's edition of Problematic Women, the show where we showcase strong conservative women and we call out hypocrisy among the feminist movement. I'm Bree Payton, staff writer at The Federalist and friend of The Daily Signal. And I'm Kelsey Harkness, a producer and reporter with The Daily Signal. Today we have quite a lot to cover, including Mona Sharon's comments on our CPAC hashtag us two panel left out by the left. Jennifer Lawrence has a surprising critique of Hillary Clinton. Monica Lewinsky has a take on hashtag me too. Nikki Haley takes quite a stand at the United Nations. And we have a special interview with Congresswoman Kathy McMorris Rogers, the highest ranking woman in Congress. But first. First, the girl with no job, famous Instagram person has no job. As it turns out, she and her sister, who's known by The Morning Breath on Instagram, they lost their syndicated web show um, that they had after The Daily Beast came swinging and revealed who their mom is. Their mom is Pamela Geller, who is a controversial figure. Um, and she has been targeted by terrorist attacks. She has been targeted by violence and all of these sorts of things. So the Daily Beast came out and revealed who their mother is and made it sound like they were trying to distance themselves um, or conceal or deceive you know, who they are and who their family is. So I'm going to read a few excerpts from this Daily Beast piece and then we'll talk about it. Okay, or this is rather, I should say, a Fox News write-up of the Daily Beast piece. But anyway, so the millennial masterminds behind the online oath show talk I'm sorry, sorry, behind the online oath show, the morning breath and girl with no job have been fired. And some are speculating it's because their mother is a conservative pundit. Okay, so an item in the Daily Beast on Wednesday claiming the sisters Claudia and Jackie, Olivia and Margot Oshry, went to great lengths to hide their, from their combined 3.3 million Instagram followers the fact that their mother is right-wing provocateur and Trump supporter Pamela Geller. The Instagram famous family have gone on to great lengths, this is a Daily Beast now, to conceal the identity of their Islamophobic mother, the publication writes. Their mother is an anti-Islamic activist, hate monger, and diehard Trump supporter. And the article also unearthed some tweets from 2015 in which Claudia, also known as Girl With No Job, tweeted things like, listening to Obama talk about ISIS is like listening to me talk about quantum physics and other not-so-great things there. So let's unpack this a little bit. So there's four sisters. And they all are Instagram famous, which I know for any of our older audience are probably like, what is Instagram famous? But they basically all do all day sit there and come up with hilarious memes that they put out on social media. And it turns into a whole full time job where they get this online show, which has now been canceled. And they they it's interesting to question how how or why they hid their identity because the backstory on these four sisters is is that um their parents got divorced and so naturally they all had their father's last name and still have their father's last name in 2008 i believe their father passed away so they still have their father's last name pamela geller who is the controversial mother in this in this um situation um, she has a different last name from her daughters. And then her daughters, it seem, seems, do go to extreme lengths not to post 
any online pictures with their mother. Now, this Daily Beast article suggested that it is because their mother is this truly controversial figure, um, and that is the reason why they don't want to be associated with her. Because if that comes out, um, you know, they'll lose followers and and get sucked into the controversy that she's involved with. The issue I have with the Daily Beast story is that they don't address the fact that their mother, however controversial she is, has actually faced real instances of terror plots against her. Um, This was reported in CNN in 2015. Right. There were two that year. Someone wanted to behead her. This is according to law enforcement. This is according to the FBI. So in defense of these girls not posting pictures with their mother and not trying to associate with their mother, I don't think it is just for political purposes. I think it is actually a security concern. And now that the Daily Beast has outed them, I fear for their lives. Yeah, that's a completely legitimate point. I mean, you know, you and I were talking about this before the show and you brought up the fact that, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if the FBI told them to do this, to distance themselves from their mom um, just out of a safety precaution, you know, so that way they wouldn't be targeted also. And I do think that, honestly, I think that this is really deeply, deeply unfair for the Daily Beast to do. I think that People are not responsible for mistakes that their parents made. I hope not. Yeah, I don't think that we should be throwing Chelsea Clinton under the bus for things that her parents did. And I don't think that we need to be throwing a girl with no job and her sisters under the bus for things that her mom has done. So one of them actually apologized because there's another layer to the story. Yeah, and And, and it's the tweets. It's the tweets. Tweets that she says she made when she was 16, and some of these tweets, which Bree just read, do cross a line. Yeah. I will say they're clearly in this space where they're sort of comedians, or at least they were working towards that space right. when they probably issued these tweets. Um, but they issued an apology for these tweets because they did cross a line, so let's play that apology. Hi, guys. Um obviously need to address a lot of what happened today. But first and foremost, I just need to apologize. Um, some news was broke this morning about who my mom is and then some really disgusting, vile, stupid tweets of mine, um, you know, resurfaced. I need to just come right out and say how sorry I am. It's not cool. It's not funny. I was a dumb kid. I was 16. I thought I was being funny and, and cool on Twitter and it's not. I'm not racist. I can't believe I even have to say that. But I'm so sorry to anyone who who read those tweets and had a reaction and was upset because you're totally entitled to that reaction. But it's so important for you guys to know that that's not who I am. And if you give me the opportunity to show you who I am and what I stand for, I would be so grateful. But I, I understand that these things take time and what I did was not okay. And I'm, 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 I'm so sorry. So to give you another idea of how inappropriate the tweets were, let me read one more. Um, Hi, at POTUS, and this was back when President Obama was president. Can you reimburse me for all the cabs I'm taking because your piece of blank plan to defeat ISIS makes me scared to take the subway? Thank you. So, yes. And that's not the worst of it. There's a few other ones that are a little bit worse. Um, But, you know, at the end of the day... I think that this gets at a larger national conversation that we need to be having, which is there's 
in a society where everything that you do, everything that you say, every single move you make is documented and archived online. Is there any room for forgiveness? Is there any room to make a mistake? Own up to it, which she said. She called these tweets vile um, herself, and I don't think there's really any dispute about that. She herself is like, yeah, I shouldn't have said these things. I definitely crossed the line. I'm sorry for what I did and for what I did you know, years ago. I've developed and grown as a person. Please forgive me for things that I said like six years ago, you know? Yeah, so I I think I probably err on the side of granting her some forgiveness because first off, she was 16, and second off, she was moving in a direction where she's taking up this space where she's some sort of comedian. Um, I'm not sure how serious she was in issuing those tweets, but I'm curious to hear from all our listeners how much you think um, what you say back when you're 16 or your younger years – how responsible you should be for that when you're older and and whether companies should have the right to fire you because they don't like your tweets. And specifically with these tweets, was the firing of them, was this politically motivated or was this um, truly because, you know, the same thing would happen whether or not she was saying these types of tweets in relation to President Trump? I don't think I have the answer there, but I think the story raises a lot of questions. Yeah. And I think employers are allowed to do whatever they want and fire people at will right like i don't think we should i think we should be very clear in saying that their employer has the right to cancel their show that's completely their decision to make if they think it's a good business decision okay fine but like i guess my issue is more um that the daily beast feels entitled to and i think it's fine even to bring up old tweets and say these are things that she is saying right but i think the conversation needs to be, okay, yeah, I said those things. Okay, let's move on. I don't think it should be, oh, now you're this pariah of a person and you should never be employable and we should never forgive you or listen to anything that you ever have to say again, right? And I think that that's the conversation. That's where things are headed. And we've seen this kind of reaction rear its heads up with Aziz Ansari, with other individuals who said or did something that crossed the line. And it's like this attitude that you can never be forgiven and you can never bounce back from it. And how much does this decision ride on the fact um, that her mother is Pamela Geller uh, versus the tweets themselves? And why did the Daily Beast decide to link those tweets to her mother? Clearly, there's some relation. And, and I have In to, their minds. I have yeah. to say, you know, I think when we're 16, we all look up to their parents and they lost their father. So I'm sure they looked up to their mother. But I can imagine over the next 10 years, they have turned out to be smart, independent women and maybe don't think the same as they did when they were 16. So I personally um, believe they deserve a little more forgiveness or or sympathy. I don't defend what they said, um, but we're curious to hear all your thoughts. So please share while we move on to our next That Happened topic of this week. All right. So this was an interesting poll that we uh, saw come up. This was reported on CNBC. 32% of millennials would break up with their significant other for a $37,000 raise. First off, Brie, I have to ask, would you? No, I wouldn't. I feel like I would pay and forego $37,000 of my salary in order to keep my current boyfriend and to keep the relationship that I have. And I think a lot of people, when you're in like a happy relationship, you would 
pay or like do anything to keep that person you know like your happiness that that outweighs like material or monetary happiness interesting you say that because this survey was by a company called comet surveyed 364 single right. employed millennials without children. <laughs> I think they would have got very different results if any of those employees were in relationships. Um, but let me read you a, a few other results. 41% they said they would um, end a relationship for a promotion. Of this 41%, they said they'd be willing to delay a relationship for 11 years, delay marriage if they're in a relationship for seven years, and delay children if they're married or in a relationship for eight years. Almost a third said they would end a relationship for a raise. And on um, and 86%, this was interesting, 86% of respondents said they would move to another city if their loved one was offered a better job. So they're willing to move for their loved one, but they're also willing um, to dump their loved one for more money. Yeah, I think, you know, if you're not in a relationship, then you're like, oh, sure, would I live the same lifestyle that I'm living right now for $37,000 more? Sure, like, why not? You know what I mean? I think, like, if you were, like, I think these responses make sense. And I think it's kind of silly. Also, I think that this speaks to how broke we are as a generation. <laughs> That's the real story. <laughs> That's the real story. We are broke. Yeah. It's also because so many of us live in these expensive cities. And I know it and is our choice. Loans. It is our choice. And we have student loans. Um, so, Again, a choice we made. <laughs> yes. Yes. All choices. Bad choices, apparently. <laughs> yeah. No, 100%. Um, so Michael Wolf. There's an interesting clip of him that surfaced or was released this week of an interview that he did with Australia's Today Show in which he was asked about allegations that Donald Trump was having an affair with someone. Um, and that led a lot of people to speculate that it was Nikki Haley, which she has repeatedly denied. Yes. And he was later kind of crucified on MSNBC's Morning Joe for making this allegation, which good for Mika for standing up and saying that this is ridiculous to just make up lies about someone. Um, Especially in the middle of this Me Too conversation. Exactly. Exactly. It's so tone deaf and ridiculous. So degrading to Nikki Haley. Yeah. So anyway, last week or two weeks ago, I guess we should say, he later said, yeah, I have no idea Like, if the president's having an affair. I just, I just made it up. Shocking, right? <laughs> I mean, in every single interview, he's admitted to not really knowing things, to making all kinds of crazy things along and, the way. And yet we still trust, you know, the media still trusts his book, Fire and Fury, although he's going around spreading rumors and now doing interviews where he... <laughs> literally pulls the the earpiece yeah. out of his ear yeah so he was asked about this he was asked about like okay you said that the president is having an affair later you said that he's not do you owe the president an apology i think it's pretty much verbatim the question and we, then kelsey take it away we have the clip so let's play the clip you said during a tv interview just last month that you are absolutely sure Donald trump is currently having an affair while president behind the back of the first lady and i repeat you said you were absolutely hold, hold, I, sure yeah i can't <laughs> However, you backflipped and said, I quote, I do not know if the president is having an affair. Do you owe the president and the first lady an apology, Mr. Wolf? I can't hear you. <laughs> 
so if, if you can't see that video, he's he's pulling the earpiece out and walking away, claiming he can't hear them. And later, the Australia Today show released uh, a- the actual footage and the audio from that interview. And it, it proved that he could, in fact, hear the question. He just didn't want to answer it. Yeah. And OK, I thought this was really funny because at one point the interviewer was like, um, hello, Mr. Wolf, can you hear me? And then it's and then he's like, no, I can't hear you. Like, clearly you can hear that. And I've had I've actually had that happen to me on MSNBC where I couldn't hear what was going on. Like there was actually an audio problem. And that's not how I did it, obviously. Right. Like if you can't hear, you can't hear. It's not going to be like, oh, yeah, I can't hear you in response. It's also interesting that he's now going overseas to promote his book, because I think he realized in the United States after making the allegations that he did, he is no longer welcome here but he he is going on a tour i saw this he's going on a speaking tour across the united states so if you hear about it um i would encourage you to to discourage people from going because i think a lot of people still like michael wolf a lot of people on the left still like michael wolf and maybe they're not paying attention to the ways he's degrading and shaming one of the most respected highest ranking women in the trump administration i think they should know so if, if they're not aware of that just let them know yeah I completely agree. All right. And with that... Our last that happened topic. Yeah. So Monica Lewinsky had a lot of interesting thoughts about Me Too and just the national conversation we're having about consent and sexual assault and harassment uh, in the workplace and just in general um, throughout the United States. And obviously she was kind of patient zero with all of this 20 years ago without any of the Me Too movement to back her. And she talks about how alone she felt at the time and how difficult this was. Um, but this was an interesting, I'm just going to read an interesting excerpt and get your response to it, Kelsey. So she says, now at 44, I'm beginning, just beginning to consider the implications of the power differentials that were so vast between a president and a White House intern. And of course, she's referring to herself and president at the time, Bill Clinton. I'm beginning to entertain the notion that in such a circumstance, the idea of consent might well be rendered moot, although power imbalances and the ability to abuse them do exist, even when the sex has been consensual. But it's also complicated, very, very complicated. The dictionary definition of consent to give permission for something to happen. And yet... What did the something mean in this instance, given the power dynamic, his position, and my age? Was the something just about crossing a line of sexual and later emotional intimacy? An intimacy I wanted with a 22-year-old's limited understanding of the consequences. He was my boss. He was the most powerful man on the planet. He was 27 years my senior, with enough life experiences to know better. He was, at the time, at the pinnacle of his career, while I was on my first job out of college. Note to the trolls, both Democratic and Republican, note of the above excuses for my responsibility for what happened. Um, None of the above excuses. Oh, right. Excuses Excuses what I happen every day. Sorry, I (laughs) messed that sentence up. None. Yeah. So she's saying I'm not making any excuses for what happened. I you know, was fully aware that what I was doing was wrong. But and she says, you know, I had a limited understanding of the consequences at the time and what would happen to her at the time. So this kind of, you know, raises a lot of questions um, and the conversation that we are having about consent today. Right. Like, I think that I think that if what had happened to her today had happened, the response would have been very, very different. And she I, would have been treated like a victim. 
Yeah, exactly. Instead of, you know, somebody as who... she was tweeted, this like horrible pariah exactly. kind of a thing. Exactly. She seemed to go in a lot of circles in this piece, which I don't necessarily blame her for. I didn't feel like there was one conclusion she drew because I think, as she said, over the last two decades, she's still trying to figure out what the the, the conclusion is. Yeah. And, you know, in, on, on one sense, she says, I consented to this. On the other hand, she's now, because of Me Too, beginning to think about the power dynamics that were involved. And I think that raises an interesting question for women that how responsible are you and at what age are we fully responsible and how much power do these powerful men hold over us and where do how, how do you define consent yeah it's it's such a gray area and it's 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 gonna be a huge challenge um and i think we're just going to continue hearing these stories with people blurring the line of in a, what's appropriate and what's not and i think we just have to take it case by case and also acknowledge that there are going to be certain cases where we don't have an answer um and what, I, sorry I think also it just goes to show that consent isn't the only governing factor in this. She even is admitting like, yeah, I consented to this, but there were a lot of other aspects of this that I didn't consider. And now when we're saying consent is the only thing, you know, I think there's a temptation to say, oh, well, did I really consent then? You know what I mean? And so I think we need to take other things into consideration too, um, like marriage and the differences between men and women and all these other things that feminists like to just kind of push aside. Push aside. She also talks about the power, uh, the political machine that was behind the investigation and um, Ken Starr, of Ken Starr, yeah. which is really interesting and and also factored into I think her recovery and the way she looks at um, at what happened. And I want to read um, the last line from this, which I thought was pretty incredible. Others might disagree, <laughs> but I appreciate this. Through all this, she wrote, during the past several several months, I have been repeatedly reminded of a powerful Mexican proverb. Quote, they tried to bury us. They didn't know we were seeds. Spring has finally sprung. It's interesting. You know, I I think for a while men did think they could get away with a lot of things by burying women. And women, even if it's two decades later, still have a voice. Yeah, absolutely. Again, what that voice means, what the conclusion is, I don't think we're fully sure yet. Yeah, and it sounds like (laughs) she doesn't fully know. She's still wrestling with what happened to her 20 years ago and all of the fallout and the way she was depicted and her life. Thus, she's still kind of picking up the pieces for that decision. Exactly. Well, that wraps up our That Happens segment for this week. When we come back, we will be back with a brand new segment called This Is What Feminism Looks Like. And we're back with our brand new segment, This is What Feminism Looks Like, a segment where we will hold up positive examples that Brie and I think exist in our cultural culture today. So the topic I wanted to raise was Nikki Haley slamming the Human Rights Council for inviting Iran, uh, an Iran, Iranian right, human rights abuser to speak at the U.N., 
So she is the queen of making these very powerful public statements. And I think when it comes to the feminist movement, we don't talk about human rights abuses enough. And so this is what Nikki Haley said. Yet again, the council discredits itself by allowing a serial human rights abuser to hijack its work and make a mockery of its mandate to promote universal human rights. This does nothing but reinforce the United States call for a much needed reforms at the council for it to be viewed as a good investment of our time and money. I love that. I I think she's right that you know when it comes to the UN and the human um, human rights council uh, there's so many actors involved that they get away with a lot and I think this is something President Trump campaigned on cleaning up the UN um, he probably didn't mention the human rights council but I love that Nikki Haley is paying attention to this stuff and making it worth a new story yeah so this guy that the Human Rights Council is inviting that she is taking issue with is one that the U- European Union imposed sanctions on um, because, as Tehran's top, former top prosecutor said, he was responsible for human rights violations, arbitrary arrests, denials of prisoners' rights, and an increase in execution in his capacity as an official in Iran. And I think it's perfectly reasonable to say, listen, you're uh, organization's name literally ha- is called the Human Rights Coalition. Why are you inviting a human rights abuser? Like, why are you overlooking these egregious offenses that this individual did, um, you know, because it f- fits your political agenda and fits your preconceived notions about things, right? I mean, we've seen this kind of behavior time and time again exhibited from the left, just this willingness to, like, forgive blindly anything that Iran does um, because the left has decided that this is, I don't know, for whatever reason, this is the country that they're going to hold up as the gold star of the Middle East. <laughs> Which it's not. We've covered Iran a lot on this podcast. Um, you know, we want to be supporting the women who in Iran who are trying to take off their hijabs. Um Searching for physical freedom and symbolically for um, far more freedoms than just what to wear. So Iran has a lot of issues and Nikki Haley was right and we applaud her for that. The other situation we wanted to highlight this week was the actress Jennifer Lawrence, who had a surprising critique of Hillary Clinton for chastising Trump supporters. So in a big cover spread for Vanity Fair... Jennifer Lawrence, who, interestingly enough, is from Kentucky. So you'd think maybe she does understand the Trump voters and she gets like this close to understanding them (laughs) and then insults them. This is what she said, quote, I've always thought that it was a good idea to stay out of politics. Twenty five percent of America identifies as liberal and I need more than twenty five percent of America to go see my movies. Correct. It is not wise, Kerr speaking, to talk about politics. When Donald Trump got sworn into office, that effing changed. So she joined a board of re- uh, a board called Represent Us, which is supposedly a bipartisan grassroots organization that aims to root out corrupt poli- corruption out of politics. Um, and what she said about Donald Trump is the is quote the Democrats made a huge mistake by chastising the Trump supporters and that was disgusting to me. Of course they're not going to vote for Hillary Clinton. They're going to vote for Donald Trump. You laughed at them when their play is very real. So she's criticizing liberal Hollywood for laughing at people for voting for 
President Trump. So it seems like she understands why they would support him. Um, but then she but then she goes on to criticize President Trump um, and says she didn't want to get involved in politics until Trump came in. And now here we are. She's taking a year off and devoting it her life to political action campaigning. Yeah. I think also it is interesting that she is saying, oh, I need more than 25% of America to go see my movies after the movie that she was in last year, Mother! Exclamation point, totally bombed at the box office. Um, granted, from what I heard and a lot of the reviews that were flurrying around at the time, I heard it was just not that great of a movie. Um, but I, I definitely think that she did receive some pushback from people who resented some of the comments that she has made in the past about President Trump, right? People who are just fatigued that politics um, has seeped into things that were otherwise, you know, escapes from politics, movies, entertainment, television, et cetera, et cetera. And I think she does exhibit a little bit of self-awareness by saying that, making that comment. Um, So I'll be interested to see kind of what actions and what steps this organization takes if it truly is this new kind of groundbreaking dynamic thing but i i kind of have a feeling that it's not so we'll have to see it sounds like we'll be talking about jennifer lawrence more on this podcast in the next year yeah definitely definitely that's fair all right well that wraps up our new segment this is what feminism looks like and we we applaud jennifer lawrence for her understanding of attempt to understand both sides in that situation um we'll see if she fully gets there (laughs) yeah Um, when we come back we will have a special interview with the highest ranking woman in congress and also address that controversial cpac panel that i found myself on And we're back with Problematic Women, our special CPAC segment. So over the weekend on Saturday, I spoke on a panel called Hashtag Us Too, Left Out by the Left, which focused on quote unquote women's issues such as feminism, hashtag Me Too, and the Women's March. It kind of went viral after one of my fellow panelists, Mona Sharon, a senior fellow um, for ethics in uh, senior fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center, was booed by some audience members for calling Republicans hypocrites for support supporting quote sexual harassers and abusers of women unquote such as Roy Moore and men in the White House who we can assume she's referring to President Donald Trump and Rob Portman and Rob Portman and who knows who other what others Uh, after the panel she penned an op-ed in the New York Times titled I'm glad I got booed at CPAC so this was interesting (laughs) Um, I will say it was unexpected from her, but when I walked away from that panel and I really thought about what she said, I realized there's not much controversial about it. And yet for the next two days, it was playing on the hour, every hour on networks like MSNBC and CNN as if this were some breaking news. So if you don't know who Mona Sharon is, she was a never Trumper for a long time. Her views are nothing new. Um, Her comments, I would say, aren't controversial among themselves. They've existed among conservatives for some time, people being very critical of 
Republican support for Roy Moore. We've talked about that. A on lot this of conservative podcast. women, you know, criticizing Donald Trump and Roy Moore and Rob Portman. Uh, I mean, you know, it's not exactly breaking news or shocking. A lot of my <laughs> colleagues, a lot of my coworkers, a lot of our fellow writers over at the Federalists have made comments on a lot of those same networks that are very, very similar and mirror the criticisms that Mona had. So, you know, it's kind of like, okay, what was the difference here? And I think the difference was that other conservatives that disagreed with her decided, you know, they booed her. And that was really the story. And I think that's the reason why, I mean, Mona didn't have a platform about a lot of these other things in those outlets at the level um, that has been exhibited over the past week, right? Like her viewpoints aren't on the hour every single hour like they were. I think the difference is really just the infighting in the conservative movement. And the place where she said it, um, the CPAC straw, straw poll that they always take, 93% of people there voted for President right. Trump. And so clearly she was speaking to Trump's base there. I think if it were a more, if it were a broader Republican audience, it would have been a much, much more mixed response. And maybe the new shows wouldn't have been talking about it because you would have had an equal amount of people cheering and an equal amount of people booing. And also, I think we need to talk about the fact that Ben Shapiro, he made a lot of critical statements about President Trump and he his statements were met with applause. Um, so I think that I actually had a conversation with another friend of mine, Sagar and Jetty, over at the Federalist Radio Hour a few days ago. Um, and he had a really interesting take on this. And he said, you know, Mona's comments, she started in talking and criticizing the president, all things that a lot of people have said. Um, but then she kind of took it a little bit like a step further in lumping in Trumpism with the things that he has done and said that are not great, right? Like the bad things that he has said about women, she kind of lumped together with his economic policies. Um, and that's something that Ben Shapiro did not do, right? Like his criticism was more nuanced uh, and he didn't throw all of his supporters under the bus along with criticizing Trump, right? Because I think that there's a lot of legitimate reasons to support the president or have voted for him, um, uh, you know, and... I think Ben Shapiro is a lot more nuanced in the way that he handled that. And so I think that is really the reason why the reactions to those two individuals and their criticisms of the president was so different. I agree. And I also want to give out a shout out to Megan McCain, who is on The View, for bringing some attention to some of the other points that we addressed on the panel, which I think are really important. And the, I, I thought we actually had a great um, panel because the three of us came from very different perspectives of conservative feminism. We just talked about Mona's perspective. Um, Ashley, who was sitting on the other side of me, was you know bringing up Planned Parenthood a lot, um, how you can't be a feminist if you support the killing of, of babies and little girls in the womb. And then I really tried to bring a perspective that I don't think is talked about enough among conservatives, and that's looking at feminism through an international lens and asking how can we be how can we build a more inclusive Inclusive version of feminism where we're not just talking about issues here in the United States and, and how women are faring here, but we actually survey how women are faring around the world and look at some of the most severe cases of oppression, violence, and abuse and ask how we can use our privilege here in the United States to help them. We all, I also address the Me Too movement, and I personally, I'd, I'd be curious to hear all your thoughts, so please share in the comments below. I personally support the Me Too movement, but I don't blame conservatives, including 
including myself, for being skeptical and cautious about the way we go about embracing this movement because we've seen movements claim to represent all women like the Women's March, and they're just completely hijacked by a far-left agenda. Um, And so back to Meghan McCain, she attempted to steer the conversation back to something I think is much more productive than the political infighting, and we have a clip of that. Like, there's a, like, I think, first of all, I I have many things, but I'm just saying there were figures in the Republican Party for a long time that have been controversial. CPAC speakers going back a long time. Last year, there was a whole controversy over Milo Milo. Yiannopoulos being invited. Sebastian Gorka was invited this year. Al Cardenas, who's an immigration opponent. Only one sitting U.S. senator ended up speaking at CPAC. Uh, regarding yeah. the, the video we just showed, there's a woman sitting next to her in the white dress. Mm-hmm. She's actually a friend of mine named Kelsey Harkness. And I wish what she said was getting as much attention uh, as what Mona said. She said, clearly this conversation was long overdue. I don't blame conservatives and conservative women for being skeptical and proceeding with caution. And I think I echo what she's saying, that we're in this weird place where just because there's a lot of things Trump does and says that are extremely incendiary, he only has 29%, according to CNN, support among women in general, that doesn't mean that all my conservative ideas I believe in and the, the tenets that, that my life sur- surrounds right. have gone out the window. Well, that's so why people like you speak up and more yeah, Exactly. And that's, that's the thing. I just mean, it doesn't, I think this while that panel certainly raised some interesting discussions, again, please share your thoughts. We would love to read them. I'm, I'm still reading through all the comments. Um, I also wrote a piece up on the Daily Signal um, called Us Too, How Liberal Feminism Excludes Millions of Women. I would encourage you to read that. Um, but before the show gets away from us, we want to play this great interview we did with Congresswoman Kathy McMorris-Rogers at CPAC, so excuse the background noise, um, highest-ranking woman in Congress, and she had some great things to say. So here's that clip. Right now we are joined by Congresswoman Kathy McMorris-Rogers. Uh, she is the highest-ranking woman in Congress. Thank you so much for joining us. We've been wanting to have you on Problematic Woman for some time. Well, it's great to be with you and great to be at CPAC. So first off, I do want to ask, do you identify as a problematic woman? I think I may, uh, considering that I'm a conservative in America, in Congress, uh, serving in in the Republican Party. Uh, I think I probably fit the definition for (laughs) some that say that we're the problematic women, women, but uh, boy, I've had wonderful opportunities in this country. I am excited to be serving uh, in Congress. I was the 200th woman ever elected to serve in the House of Representatives out of over 11,000 who have served. And I want more freedom. I want more opportunity. I'm a mom now. I have three kids. Uh, America has offered me great opportunities, and I want to make sure that I'm doing everything I can to ensure that women and everyone in this country believe that they can they can be anything that they want to be. I also believe I've heard you're the only woman in Congress to have given birth not once but twice while you're serving well, in office? It, it, is, uh, it is. It was true at the time. So I was 35 and single so- when I was elected, <laughs> and then I was, so I was the fifth to ever give birth, the first to do it twice, and now I have three kids. I have a wonderful husband, Brian, who's retired from the Navy. He stays home with the kids. Uh, but we need we need that perspective, that voice represented in Congress. I, I spend a lot of time encouraging more women, uh, conservative women, to run. We have a great uh, story to tell. Uh, this is an exciting time in this country, actually, as women are 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 being their leaders in in our military and corporations. Uh, women are starting businesses. Two out of three businesses now in America are being started by women. Uh, so I, I just think we need to celebrate that and encourage more leadership. 
And speaking of business owners, many of them female, I know an issue you were very outspoken on in the past year was tax reform and how tax reform can specifically help women. I know on the left we heard quite a bit this was going to hurt women and hold them back. What was your response to that? Well, the rhetoric was just uh, was just not reality. It was it was um, scare tactics and fear mongering. Nancy Pelosi saying that this was going to be Armageddon, that people were going to die. Uh, it was just it was beyond reality. And and the and as this bill continues to be implemented, we're just seeing more and more positive stories for everyone, for women that are starting businesses. You know, they have more confidence, more hope that they can actually tear up that wall and expand the business or start a second business. Uh, for women that are, you know, trying to figure out how to pay for health care, how to, you know, pay for food and groceries and their energy bills, they're going to have more money in their pocket, more take-home pay. 95% of wage earners right now are seeing their their take-home pay increase because the withholding tables are changing. This is this is helping everyone have more optimism, more hope. Um, as they see more jobs coming back to America, uh, people that are offering more jobs, and, and a job is is the beginning. It's what gives you the opportunity for a better life, and it's so much more than a paycheck. So I, I just am excited about uh, the optimism, the hope after so many years where we were we'd seen stagnant wages, stagnant economic growth, and it was just a damper on all of us. And it's like we're being unleashed and being, we can start dreaming again. <laughs> so that's what happened over the past year. Can you give us any perspective on what, it, what might be coming up during this next year that stands to benefit not just women, um, although we are a women's focused podcast, so we love hearing issues right. um, that directly will affect women, um, but what's next on the agenda that really can help Americans and American families? Right. Well, any given issue before Congress, by and large, is a woman's issue, right? Women care about defense, they care about the economy, they care about their families, schools, health care. Um, for 2018, uh, in the House, we are focused on continuing to grow our economy, create jobs. That's the best thing that we can do. And uh, we want to focus on the infrastructure. That is the, uh, a priority of President Trump, the infrastructure package, as well as workforce development. Uh, what we're seeing is that as we have the economy growing, we have a lot of skills that are needed in the workforce. So the workforce development, the vocational uh, program skills training, the expansion of the apprenticeship program, also restoring some work requirements that the previous administration had done away with so that people that are on the sidelines uh, and, and don't feel like they have the opportunities in the workforce, that we can get them trained and give them um, more opportunities and, and see what they can do. There's a lot of skills and talent that has been put on the sidelines that we'd like to get back into our economy and give them an opportunity for a better life. So I always love asking this question to women on the right because I think we're in a unique position where at least women on the right allow for a diversity of perspectives and responses to this. So the question is, do you identify as a feminist? Well, it depends on how I define a feminist. I love Nancy Reagan's feminist uh, definition, which was basically, if you think that uh, women can be anything in this country, then I'm a feminist. And I, I was I was raised that way. My, my parents said I could be anything that I wanted to be, that this is the country that nothing holds you back. And it was really much later in my life when I got into politics and running for office that I was even 
gave this a second thought that whether it was a positive or a negative to be a woman, America is this great land of opportunity and I think we should celebrate what everyone has to offer and, and make sure that everyone has uh, equal opportunity to pursue their dreams. In the era of the Women's March, the Me Too movement, um, it seems like conservatives certainly do need to respond and have a voice speaking to younger women, but also sure. we don't want to pander t just towards women because we know a lot of policies that we're fighting for can affect everyone. But I'm sure a lot of women look up to you. Right. And my last question would be, what advice would you have um, for how conservatives can better connect and reach young conservative women? Well, so many of these examples are wrong. And, and we must take a stand and say that this, this is not acceptable. Uh, this is not acceptable behavior, um, sexual harassment, sexual assault, no matter where it is, in the workplace, in Hollywood, and uh, on Capitol Hill, it is wrong. And the Republican women have taken that stand. We, we immediately came together, and it's actually been women, Republicans, and Democrats that have come together to look at what needs to be put in place on Capitol Hill to make sure that those congressional offices are safe. And if there is a situation that uh, a victim knows where they can go to get the support, uh, that that is a, a perspective that we bring that I think is important. And I've, I've been encouraged across the board that on Capitol Hill, people are saying, you know, we want to make sure that this is a, an environment that is welcoming and that is safe for everyone. Well, sometimes I don't always think that the work that yourself and your colleagues as Republicans on the Hill are doing um, to help women, even for your own staff, get you, that you always get the credit that you deserve. So thank you for that. I know a lot of people are appreciative. And thank you so much for joining us on Problematic Women. Great to be with you. Time to crown our problematic woman of the week. Uh, Kelsey, we're going to go totally off script here. Lauren <laughs> and I decided to surprise you. Um, you're actually the problematic woman of the week. Why am I problematic? <laughs> you're problematic woman. You're the problematic woman of the week because you said a lot of problematic things on the CPAC panel. And so we're going to play a clip from that CPAC panel of the problematic things that you said. Their version of feminism is often very selfish. It's often about me. Don't get me wrong, Me Too is very important. I'm important, you're important. But the reason I love the name of this panel so much, Us Too, is because it's about all of us. It's about an inclusive version of feminism where I'm not just worrying about myself as a woman here in the United States. I'm worried about the women um, across the seas who are facing issues like female genital mutilation. And those women right. <laughs> are never talked about. Not only do they face practices like FGM, then they are often forced into an arranged marriage mm -hmm. where on their wedding night, the man that they're being forced to mar marry believes it's his right to get sexual pleasure by ripping her open after she's faced FGM. And I'm sorry to be graphic, but I think we need to be talking about these issues more. <laughs> so every time I see the Women's March, whose tagline is, uh, women's rights are human rights, and humans, human rights are women's rights, it makes my blood boil when I see them being silent on the women in Iran who are risking arrest, risking their lives on the street 
to take off their hijabs. Right. They have been silent time and time again. Anytime women in the Middle East or African countries are making progress fighting for their rights, they have such a platform, and they don't use it for those women because they're only thinking about themselves. So you had a lot of interesting and problematic <laughs> things to say, obviously, um, and that's why we're crowning you Problematic Woman of the Week. And you know what, Kelsey, you are right, that a lot of women overseas so oftentimes get ignored by the feminist movement. And we talked about earlier in the show how the human rights campaign is including people that are serial human rights abusers, um, you know, that are just being welcomed with open arms by entities on the left that claim to care about human rights. And so often feminists, you know, claim that they're fighting for human rights for women, but they they aren't a lot of times. And they're silent about women that are fighting for their rights to remove their hijabs and be able to drive. Um, And so I always appreciate and you always bring to the show and to this podcast an international perspective that I think very few people have. Um, So I always appreciate that and wanted Lauren and I wanted to give you a shout out and thank you for all of your contributions contributions to the show. I am so honored and caught off guard <laughs> to be crowned problematic one of the week, but it's a great thing to be problematic. As I always say, you're never going to accomplish anything without being a problem to some sort of establishment. And I think if more people join me and join us in voicing our grievances with the feminist movement and asking them to be more inclusive of women who are facing real cases of oppression by, while also talking about important, important issues like Me Too here in the United States, I just can only imagine what we can do for women worldwide. So thank you and thank you all for watching that. I appreciate it. <laughs> I'm honored. I'm flattered and I'm caught off guard. As a wise woman once said, well-behaved women rarely make history. There you go. And with that, that wraps up our show. I'm Bree Payton, staff writer at The Federalist in front of The Daily Signal. You can read all my work over at thefederalist.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Bree underscore Payton. We will be back with more next week. And you can follow my work on Twitter at Kelsey J. Harkness. This podcast is a collaboration between The Daily Signal and The Federalist. It's produced by Lauren Evans of The Daily Signal. You can tweet segment ideas to her at Lauren Liz Evans. If you like this podcast, please, please support us by rating it, subscribing on iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. We appreciate you sharing problematic women with your friends and for supporting strong conservative women who are standing up for America's culture.